Why do we pray? What is prayer? What is the point of prayer? That is the topic of this morning's sermon. We are looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We have been in the Sermon on the Mount for a while now, and we have reached to a point where last week Jesus pointed out three different areas of spiritual activity. These three areas that represented really all spiritual activity we do, and we looked at what our motivation really is for why we do the things for Jesus that we do. Why do we give? Why do we fast? And why do we pray? And Jesus touched on that. And if you, if you look in the Gospel of Luke, his disciples asked him, teacher, teach us to pray. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is adding this into his discussion on our motivation for why we pray. We often call this the Lord's Prayer, but truly a better answer, a better, a better name for it would be a model prayer. But as we get started this morning, I want us to see first and foremost that when you pray, you should start with God. Look at Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 9. It says, pray then like this. Jesus is speaking, of course. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We call it the Lord's Prayer. But really, it's a model. And the reason I say it's a model is because it's not intended to be something that we memorize and that we say mechanically and mindlessly. It's not a special formula that is our uh, special get-out-of-jail-free uh, get card. You, you, you've heard of many people in, in very serious times. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. They don't know how to pray. They don't pray very often. So when they find themselves in trouble, they repeat these words as if these are the end-all words of prayer. But the truth is that many times we say these prayers so mechanically, we say this so out of just rote memory, we don't really give any thought to what we're saying. And according to what Jesus said in, in the previous, pr previous part of this chapter, as he was talking about why we pray and how we're motivated to pray, we are praying like hypocrites when we are just spouting off the words. I remember many, many of you guys are probably like this. If you played football growing up, I remember we would stop in the locker room before a game and we would be, our father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, we'd be so just intense about praying the Lord's prayer and it meant nothing to us. It was, there was nothing there other than us just saying something as a team, but there was no real power in it. Jesus said, this is a model for us to pray. It is not the words we're supposed to pray necessarily. It is a model. So he says, when you pray, first and foremost, he says, pray for the glory of his name. Pray for the glory of his name. Look back at verse 9 again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He says right off the bat, keep your audience in mind. You're praying to your Father. Jesus instructed his disciples to address God. He is instructing us as a corporate body to express, to express our relationship with God when we pray. He is, as a body, our Father. If we are a follower of Jesus Christ, he is your individual, personal, heavenly Father. But as a group, as we pray in public, as we pray as a corporate body, he is our Father. 
In Matthew's gospel, Jesus referred to God as Father 43 times. 38 of those times, he accompanied, he accompanied the term Father with a personal pronoun. When he was talking to his disciples about praying to God, about praying, he said, he is your Father. When referring to his own unique relationship with God, he said, he is my Father. When speaking about the righteous as sons of the kingdom, that would be us. When we are, and he's speaking to us, about us, and we're to, we are the righteous as sons and daughters of the kingdom, he is their father. When speaking in the third person about him being the son of man, he is his father. He, the use of personal pronouns here with father in Matthew shows us that Jesus did not view God as the father of all people in general. Make sure you catch that. He is not the father of all people in general. Instead, he, God is the father of Jesus' followers exclusively. He clarifies this thought in chapter 11, verse 27, when he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will reveal his Father to us. There's a misnomer that we are all God's children. You will hear politicians use that phrase. You will hear businessmen trying to speak to a particular audience. You will hear people who really don't have a good theology. They will say that we are all God's children. But the truth is, according to what Jesus has just shared with us, only those who, who are God's children are those who are called according to his purposes, those who are drawn to him by the Holy Spirit, those to whom Jesus himself chooses to reveal his father to. Not everyone is his, is his child. If you have a personal relationship with Jesus today, that means he sought you out. We've heard over the years, and, and I, I mentioned in the first service the, that the, the, back in the 20th century, that seems so like, you know, that's so 20th century. But, it, but looking back in the 1900s, we talked about people, we would hear people give their testimony that they were seeking out God, that they had come to a place in their life, they had reached rock bottom, and they determined they were gonna seek after God. But honestly, that's backwards. God seeks after us. And the moment that you feel like maybe you started to seek after him, that's really just when he got your attention of the seeking he was doing for you. You didn't seek him, he sought you. You cannot find a relationship with God on your own. Jesus makes it clear here. He reveals to whom the Father is, to those who he chooses. He chooses us. If you know him, he is your father. Addressing God as our father should bring with it a feeling of assurance that he hears our prayers. He is a good, good father. I love that song that we sing from time to time. Good, good father. Often we say, well, Kenan, I don't feel like he's a good father. Have you seen what's happening in my life? Have you seen the troubles I'm dealing with? Have you seen what's going on in my life? And, and if he was a good father, he would be able to take care of these things and he wouldn't have me suffering through these things. But the truth is, our problem is we define, we give our definition to what is good. 
when he himself and he alone is the standard bearer. Only he is good. Only he is, is, can be explained as good. And if we do anything good, it's because of the Holy Spirit that's in us giving us the unction to do something good. And if you do something good before you come to be a follower, you say, well, I know some really good people and they're not even Christ followers. They're, they're able to do only the good things that come from being created in God's image. Because we are image bearers, we have the potential for good but there's nothing in us good. There's nothing in us in and of ourself. The power is not, unless you're a follower of Jesus, the power is not within you. To pull yourself up spiritually by your bootstraps. You are either a follower of Jesus or you're not. You cannot seek him out. Jesus said he will choose to reveal. But we can, we can trust as a father that he will do good things. He says even wicked fathers desire to give good things to their children. Look what Jesus said in chapter seven, verse nine. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? He is a good father. We, in our feeble attempts of being Parents want to give good things to our children. And if we are able to do that and we have this sinful nature in us, he's saying, you're sinful. You have this sinful nature. There's nothing good in you, but yet you are able to do good things. And if you who are evil, if you who are fallen, if you who have this sinful nature are able to do good things for your children, how much more will the good, good father do for you? Truth is, not all of us have a good relationship with our fathers. So we haven't necessarily had the example put before us of what a good father is. Sometimes we have a background of, of not even knowing our father, feeling rejected by our fathers, being so hurt from our fathers that the idea of referring to God as father doesn't really sit well with us because we don't have that example but I believe even in those circumstances, we all have a longing for that sort of relationship. Years of hurt and unresolved issues may cloud it now, but it's still there. And that longing can be filled by having a relationship with our Heavenly Father. So we have to know our audience. To whom does Jesus say we are praying? We are not praying to some God who is abstract, who's out there somewhere, who's just some being who has spun the earth into existence and sets back and watches it roll. He is a personal God. He is so personal, we can refer to him as our Father. There are six petitions in this model prayer. Three represent how we rep uh, speak to God about God and his issues. And the last three are in our personal supplications, our personal needs that we might bring to him. So we're gonna start today with these three petitions that are about us seeking God. First thing he says in verse nine there is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed's a word we don't use often. I don't, I don't walk around in, in Athens here, go to Walmart and have a conversation with somebody and they say, you seem to be hallowed today. We don't, that's not a word we use, so what does it mean? It means to sanctify or make holy. They definitely wouldn't say, you seem hallowed today. 
to sanctify or to make holy. The, the sense of this word is the idea that God would be spoken of and treated with the highest honor. He would be seen and spoken of as preeminent. He is holy. He is set apart. Another way of interpreting this from the Greek would be, let your name be kept holy or let your name be treated with reverence. Friends, we, we sang a song just a moment ago that his name is the highest, his name is the greatest, his name is above everything else. And what we have to come to grips with sometimes, especially in those moments when life's circumstances keeps us from thinking about how good and great God is, sometimes circumstances leave us feeling in a way that, that our life has fallen in around us and we can't hardly focus on him because we are so focused on what's going on around us. It's in those those moments we have to remember that you cannot change the facts. How you feel in that situation does not change that his name is the greatest. His name is the highest. There is nothing higher than him, and we have to be people who understand that no matter what life circumstances is showing us. We started with Psalm 113 this morning. Look back again at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. We took that out of Psalm 113. The song we sang, Blessed Be Your Name, was actually written from the book of Job. Job is the one who said, after, after all that God had put him through, after all that God had tested him with, when Satan came against him and took everything from family to riches to all the things that in life that would be possessions of his, when everything had fallen apart, so it seemed, Job said, he gives and he takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. It's in those moments when we struggle with life, when we don't understand the diagnosis we've received, when we don't understand why the economy is killing us, when we don't understand how we're going to get through to the next day, it's those moments when we pray that we remember no matter our circumstances, his name is to be revered. And we understand what comes with that as well. The opposite of being hallowed, the opposite of God's name being revered would be for God's name to be profaned or defiled or to make morally or ritually impure. We would even say that this would be like speaking of God as common. If you have a, if you have a God is the man upstairs mentality of God, then you are treating him as common. If you have a great-grandfatherly idea that God is just there to give you a, you know, what is it about grandfathers? They want their grandchildren to have absolutely everything they want. Grandmothers as well. We can throw grandma in there too. You know, I wasn't allowed to have that before dinner, but my kids get two of those before dinner. Right? We have this idea, this grandfatherly, this grand parental idea of God that he is just here. He is to get, grant me every wish I have. He's almost like a genie in the bottle that we rub for our wishes. If that is your understanding and view of God, you have a common view in that you are not hallowing his name. 
The third commandment of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless who takes his name in vain. Kenneth Harris tells us that taking the Lord's name in vain primarily refers to someone taking a deceptive oath in God's name or invoking God's name to sanction an act in which the person is being dishonest. We talked about that previously during the Sermon on the Mount about our oaths, about our yes being yes and our no being no and not invoking the name of of God in that. But it also bans using God's name in magic or, here you go, irreverently or disrespectfully. The Old Testament presents 14 different kinds of ways that God's people would profane or defile the name of God by doing wicked things. Those things included things like uh, offering children as sacrifices to false gods, by swearing falsely by his name, or, or if the priests who were supposed to be set apart in their appearance if they would break those rules? How about if the priests would misuse the things that had been dedicated to God? We would profane his name by profaning the temple in the Old Testament. Basically, any action that is contrary to God's character, as followers of Jesus, as children of our Heavenly Father, we should remember that our words and our actions can bring dishonor to our heavenly father, our words, our actions, our attitudes that lead to our words and our actions. We can dishonor his name. My dad was a, uh, he's a retired truck driver. Uh, Up until my freshman year, he was an over-the-road truck driver, so he was gone throughout the week, but he was home nearly every weekend. I, I can count on one hand the amount of weekends that he wasn't home, so we were blessed that his job allowed him to be back. But, but I remember as I was growing up and, and I started to drive and now he's home all the time because he's driving locally and, and home every night and I'm getting ready to go out on a Friday night or a Saturday night and I hear from the top of the stairs, Kenan, remember what your name is. And it wasn't, he wasn't saying remember your name is Kenan. He was saying remember your name is Braden. You represent me. Wherever you go, you represent this family name. So don't bring any dishonor to it. What if we said this morning, Christian, remember what your name is. Whatever you're doing, however you're talking, when you're responding to people at work, when you are having one of those days, because, you know, let's be honest, we all have one of those days, and for whatever reason, you've flown off the handle, did you represent your heavenly Father well? Maybe there's a need to go back and own up to that and ask for forgiveness. So as we pray, we begin with acknowledgement that God is our Father and that his name is to be held in the highest esteem, and it's to be held in honor. And if we are not going to be like the hypocrites mentioned in verses five through eight, our lives need to match our words. Dr. Charles Quarles tells us that the petition implies that Jesus' disciples have a personal responsibility to glorify the name of God through their good works. The good deeds of the disciple are not seen as acts of righteousness that he personally manufactures, but as righteous works that God produces in 
and through him. It's never about us. It's always about what he is doing in our lives. The model that Jesus gives us for prayer says pray for the glory of his name. But we should also pray for submission to God's rule. We pray for submission to God's rule. In verse 10, the beginning of verse 10 says, your kingdom come. There is an already but not yet aspect to praying for God's kingdom to come. Jesus instituted his kingdom during his ministry here on earth. In Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist declared for the people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The baptism of Jesus marked the beginning of his earthly ministry, thus beginning the setting up of the kingdom of heaven, also known as the kingdom of God. The second petition in this model prayer is pointing for all believers to praying to be continuing the work for advancing God's kingdom. We are to be praying to advance his kingdom, for his kingdom to come. The presence of his kingdom in the here and now is the reign of Christ in the hearts of all believers. It is the rule of Christ here in his local church. We are to pray for his kingdom to come. As people of God, here in the local church, we are to reflect his love. We pray for his kingdom to come by obeying his principles. We love him with all that we have and demonstrate that love first and foremost by loving one another. There is a need to pray for his kingdom to come. Question would be, does that show up in our prayers? Does it show up that in the, in the way we pray, after, after we have revered his name, after we recognize to whom we are praying, do we pray that his kingdom, his agenda will be fulfilled? Do we pray that he is going to be, be, be the one that we, we strive to follow and that we are going to do all we can in our personal lives to make sure that his kingdom comes in the hearts of people? Are we going to be praying for our church here at First Baptist? Are we praying for the First Baptist ministries to be sure that we can help with the coming of his kingdom? Are we being people who reach out to others? As I mentioned, there is an already but not yet aspect to this petition. Jesus is reigning now in the hearts of his people. But the final consummation of his kingdom will not happen until the second coming of Christ. This is when we will all experience and enjoy full benefits of his kingdom. Right now, he reigns in our hearts. Right now, he rules and reigns in the local church. We strive to advance his kingdom by sharing our faith with others who don't believe. But one day, when his kingdom is finally and fully consummated, according to Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So we pray. We pray for his kingdom to come. His kingdom. We are stating when we are praying that we want his kingdom, his agenda to advance and not our own. We pray that we want his name to be honored, not our own. We pray that his agenda be fulfilled, not our own. We focus the first part of our prayers on him, acknowledging that he is worthy. He and he alone is worthy to be honored. 
And in so doing, we state the obvious, but also we make a cognitive assertion that he is God and we are not. Praying this way keeps us in our proper place. We are self-aware. We have placed him in his proper place in our lives of, of preeminence, and we place ourselves in our proper place in submission to his rule. Dr. Daniel Aiken sums this up when he writes, I want God's kingdom to come today. I want his rule and reign in my life right now. I also pray and long for the day when his glorious name is honored as holy among all the nations and throughout the universe. Jesus, in quoting Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, God is speaking to Isaiah, but he says, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. There is, an, again, this is a fact. It doesn't matter how we feel about it today. It doesn't matter. Are we praying for his kingdom? Do we have that kind of kingdom thought? There are those who say that some people are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. But the truth is, even though that we say that cliche, the truth is we cannot be of any good if we are not at least a little heavenly minded. We have to have a future. There are those who say that we don't talk to our friends about Jesus because we don't talk to Jesus about our friends. Are we willing to pray for God's rule to happen in people's life? Are we praying that way? Or do our prayers sound more like a wish list? Does it sound more like a Christmas list of a kid in, at Christmas time who just wants and wants and wants and wants? That we want God to, to bow and to do the things that we want him to do. How do our prayers stack up? This brings us to the third petition of this model prayer. We've prayed for the glory of God's name. We've prayed for the submission to God's rule. But Jesus also says to pray for the fulfillment of his will. I didn't underline his because I already had fulfillment underlined. I should have put his in bold. It's his will. In fact, the, the end of verse 10 says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we, it could be better translated. May your will happen on earth as it is in heaven. There is an indication here that God is already fully ruling in heaven. His will is completely followed. There is an assumption that God already is completely sovereign over heaven. So as believers, we are to pray that his will be completely followed with the same immediacy here on earth as it is in heaven. And not just in general but because we are praying to our Father whose name we revere and honor and esteem and to whose authority and rule we submit, our prayer is that his will, his principles he desires be played out in our individual lives. We have to stop thinking about praying for everyone else and that God is going to work in everyone else's lives and we have to make sure that we are praying for him to work in ours, that we are su surrendering to the fulfillment of his will. Why? Because we don't wanna be like the hypocrites who pray one thing for the world in general and then they don't intend to follow it for ourselves. When we do that, when we pray for things, we are not willing to follow ourselves. We profane his name. 
We don't revere it. We don't hallow it. We fail to submit to his rule. We want his rule for everyone else, but leave me alone. We want his will accomplished out there, not in our own lives, because that means surrendering some things that he may want us to surrender. The will of God is not always easy. It's not always safe. I've heard it said before, people will say, the safest place for you to be is in the will of God. I would challenge you to say that to a missionary who is martyred in a foreign country because of their faith in Jesus. There are those who have to secretly share their faith because the country is closed to the gospel and it's for their sake of their own lives that they don't say it out loud in a public setting. Romans 12, 2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's will that we are supposed to pray to be fulfilled, it is good. His will is acceptable. His will is perfect. Ours, on the other hand, is not. Many of us journal. I'm not one of those. I don't, I don't like to journal. I have tried. I have like 14 notebooks that I have started journaling in, that I start off nice and strong, and the next thing you know, I'm not journaling anymore. It's just not something that I do well. But there are those who have prayer notebooks in their journals, and they'll write down their prayer requests that they're lifting to God, and they'll come back, and they will mark them as answered prayer. Here's an answered prayer. Here's an answered prayer. And if we're not careful, those things that we're marking is where God has done what we've wanted him to do. But the truth be told, the answer no is a valid answer. Sometimes you're, we're praying and we're, we want a certain thing in our lives. We want a particular person to be healed. We want a particular job that we're praying for. We want a particular situation to be handled. And we want God to take care of it and to pull us out of this particular fire we're struggling with. And we, we pray and we pray and God doesn't move and he doesn't, doesn't take care of those things. And that, belief, that, that family member that was diagnosed, that family member is, is, is eventually healed ultimately through death death and resurrection in Christ, but they are not healed on this side. And we hold that against God because we prayed. And if God was a good, good father, like Kenan said he was earlier today, he would have healed. But we don't understand God's will all the time. But we can trust that his will is good and his will is acceptable and his will is perfect. I started here at First Baptist in February of 2020. Five weeks later, the world shut down. I am still playing catch-up and, and getting to know church members because the first couple of years, we were so sporadic in and out and, and not having social events and fellowships to where we could have a chance to talk, and I'm still trying to learn. And I'll be honest with you, it's difficult now after being here for three and a half years to walk up to somebody and, and know their face and be like, what was your name again? But that's the truth. I want to tell you that the first year to year and a half of ministry here at First Baptist was very, very hard. 
because of the circumstances, because it was COVID. My wife, the social butterfly that she is, she couldn't get to know anyone. We were, we were secluded at home. We couldn't have people in. We couldn't go out. Our, our son moves to a new place. Our daughter who goes, goes off to UNA as we move, but our son comes here to go to Athens High School. Everyone's wearing masks, so he's struggling. It's funny, when you put a mask on a person, they quit being outgoing to talk to people. He's struggling. He's struggling with, with the, toward, the, toward the spring of the year. Life is really hard for him. And I can take you to the spot we were sitting on the back, back porch when he looked at me in March of 2021 and he said, Dad, I'm not happy here. And that's a, that's a dagger to the heart of a father because I brought him here. I did this to him. And right around that time, and, I, and I'll be honest with y'all, I, I w- weighed on whether or not to share this because it's, it's, it really doesn't put me in a good light, but it's really a good illustration for what we're talking about. I had learned right around that time that Sanford University was hiring an associate professor of ministries, and I applied. I had gone to school to get my PhD. I felt like that's why I went to school was to get, um, to get a, uh, a degree to be able to teach in a university or seminary setting. If it had been another church position, I would have never applied after only being here a little over a year. But our family was hurting. I was watching my boy. He's not in this, so I'll be a little more open in here than I was in the 830 where he sat. I watched my boy shrivel. And it killed me. So I thought, this could be the best of both worlds. I could find a position teaching like I felt like maybe one day God would have me teaching. And I can, if it's at Samford, I can take him home to Gardendale. And he can play his senior year of baseball with his buddies he grew up playing with. I can take him home. And I sat there with him that night after he said, I had already applied. I had already done it. He had not yet told me those words of, Dad, I'm not happy here. So we're sitting there that night, and I'm, I'm on the back porch with him, and he says that. And I said, well, Andrew, let me tell you what I've done. And I told him about applying. And I said, here's here's the truth. If I was to receive that position, it would be a God thing because I don't have really the background to get it. But God answers our prayers. We can't follow the theology of Garth Brooks who thanks God for unanswered prayers. God answers prayers We don't want to accept the no that he tells us. But I told Andrew, I said, God will answer the prayer, and no is a valid answer. And I'm going to make a pact with you tonight. If God says no, then that means he's not done with us here at First Baptist in Athens. And we have to be all in. And he agreed, and God said no. And things started, you know, when you surrender to the will of God like that, 
When you say, God, I don't know what you are doing, but I trust it. It's not what I want. It's not what, it's not what my heart's desire was. My heart's desire was take my boy home. But God said, I have a plan and my will is good and acceptable and perfect. And no is a valid answer. I don't know what you're praying about today. As we conclude and the band comes and I've got, a, I've got another, another quote I wanna give you, but I don't know what you're praying about. I don't know what it is in your life that you feel like if God doesn't answer it the way I want him to answer, then I'm done with God. You say, Kenan, I don't, I don't think I would ever say that consciously. People do every day. Because God didn't answer it the way they wanted. They did, God didn't bend his will to theirs. And they turn their back because they're mad at God. They, they pray for the fulfillment of their own will rather than the fulfillment of his. There is freedom and peace and joy on the other side of that kind of submission. I can testify to that. Many here in the room can testify to that. Paul Tripp gives us a nice summation for these first three petitions in the model prayer. He says, thy kingdom come are words of surrender, words of protection, and words of grace that can only be prayed by those who've been delivered by the Redeemer from the kingdom that always leads to destruction and death, the kingdom of self. Where's your will? How does it line up with God's? When you pray, do you keep in mind your audience? Do you keep in mind the fact that his name, whether we feel like it at that moment or not, is to be revered? Do you glorify him? Do you pray? Do you pray and submit to his rule in your life? Do you pray for his will to be done, not your own?